0: Turn with me back in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 13. We are on part three of our study on the two beasts in Revelation chapter 13. I do not know how many parts we will have. That's how these things work. But I do know we're on part three today. So we are continuing our look at the portrait of the second beast here in Revelation 13. And last week we defined the second beast, and began looking at the description of it in verse 11, and we'll continue that today. Um, So how do we define the second beast? Second beast is the false prophet that is spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 16 and 19. The beast is the propagandist or the first beast. Remember, the first beast is the perverted sword, or the wicked state power under the influence of the enemy, Satan. The second beast represents the system of all religious seduction. Any or every false gospel is summed up in the type or the, the picture, the symbol of the second beast. So last week we started looking at verse 11, and we'll get no further than that. There are some things that I... Um, felt compelled to pull out of this as we as we uh, study through this. And verse 11 says this, and I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. The picture there is, is immediate for us, isn't it? It looks like a lamb. Who is that describing? So very distinct imagery there to point us to the counterfeiting of Christ. And it had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. There are eight brief considerations regarding the beast in the world that I want to pull out of this. And we look last week at the first two, the beast is of this world. When we think about its origin and nature, it comes from the earth rather than the sea. The first beast rose out of the sea. The second beast comes out of the earth. The earth and the sea represent the whole of unregenerate humanity. And what the scripture is telling us is that there is no exemption on this planet from the influence and the corruption of these beasts. These are symbolic of the corrupt systems of this world. And we started looking last week at what we meant by the world. It's a very broad statement. And simply this, the world is anything and everything that opposes Christ. We would simplify it. The world and its systems are anti-Christ. That is at odds or against Christ. We looked at um, the scripture that teaches us the impact of the thinking of this world, the beast of this world. The second thing we considered was or does have its own mind. And its intent is to assimilate us. Into its own worldview. Sometimes this assimilation is through force, but mostly it's through seduction. I think of this by analogy as a boat on a river. When we think of um how this world conducts us and moves us, a a boat sitting on the river is invisibly propelled, isn't it? not talking about a motor on the back of it. Imagine a canoe, not a motorboat. The world conducts us or attempts to conduct us just quietly through the, the ebb and the flow of the current. The mind of this world moves very much like that. It's seldom by force where it's forcing us into a certain direction, but it conducts us very quietly was thinking about. I, I saw a commercial the other day that was, to me, quite offensive. It was obviously two men. It was a phone, a, a cell phone commercial. But these two dudes, obviously living in, as a married couple, and I was thinking to myself, how has our mind shifted? The the first, if you think about advertising. And the intent of advertising is to make money, obviously, right? Um, advertising has changed a great deal, and it wasn't. It was back in 1994 that IKEA, I think, was the first one that did a commercial that celebrated um, what Scripture calls a very sin- sinful lifestyle, and and it was a shock factor for a lot of people. I don't know if you remember it or not, but. Now that shock factor has gradually subsided and the things that were shocking to us 10, 15, 20 years ago are gradually becoming more and more acceptable. They're not nearly as offensive to us as they maybe used to be. What was once shocking is now normal. That is the picture of that hidden current that is moving our thinking. The beast of this world has its own mind and we looked at Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. Both verses or both chapters reference the mind that was given to both beasts. And Revelation 17 talks about the unity of thinking. Revelation seventeen twelve, the 10 horns that you saw are the 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Verse 13 of Revelation 17, these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. What is that mind? What is that thinking? What is that worldview? They're aligned in their thinking, and their thinking is opposed to the true lamb. What does scripture say regarding the world's mind? The world's mind is debased and hostile to God. It is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. And it's interesting, Romans 8, 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It is man completely opposed to the law of God. That is, we were talking about the flesh this morning. Jesus said the flesh profits what? Nothing. Nothing. Why must we be born again? Why must we be regenerate? For those of us that think that we're contributing something to our conversion, something to our salvation, Scripture tells us, and Jesus is very clear in John chapter 6, 63, it it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. When we think about meeting Jesus halfway, our flesh is not meeting Jesus anywhere. We're dead. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We must have our minds changed. We must have, and we looked at this in detail last week, we must have our minds renewed. There's only one way to renew our minds. And that is to immerse our minds in God's word. That's how we offset the influence of the world's mind on us. And, and if you sit here this morning and you think your mind is unassailable and uninfluencible, Did I just create a word? Mm-hmm. If your mind cannot be influenced. That's a long word. Strike that. If your mind can't be influenced. That's what you're thinking. We're, we're mistaken we're mistaken. Why would the scripture tell us that we must have our minds renewed if our minds did not need to be renewed? We are able to be influenced. The question is how much. We need to do an audit of our thinking. I don't know your thoughts. You don't know my thoughts, but, but we need to do an audit. We need to take account of what our philosophy is what our worldview is, what our thinking is, and and how do we audit that? By taking our beliefs, our perceptions, and comparing them to what God's word. That's how we audit our thinking. But don't be deceived into thinking that we're not able to be deceived, because it's not true. The third thing I want to look at, and this one hits me right square between the eyes the beast of this world has its own cares turn over to mark chapter 4 the beast of this world has its own cares this is the parable of the sower you guys are all familiar with this i want to point a couple of things out about this parable that jesus jesus gives in mark chapter 4 in verse 13 he says do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables speaking to his disciples? Jesus interprets the parable for them. He says the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, I want you to notice he's actively engaged in stealing away the word. It says when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus is telling us Satan has a very active heart in stealing away the preached gospel. Every one of these analogies that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower are all people that have an encounter with the gospel and walk away unchanged, unsaved, eternally. Think about that for a second. So when Jesus says Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown, where does Satan do that? Where is the word sown? Where is the gospel sown predominantly? Right here. Am I saying that Satan comes into the church and steals away the word out of your minds or tries to? The answer is a resounding yes. Well, Satan wouldn't come in here. Yes, he would. He has work to do. And the work that he does is to steal away the word of God from your minds. So I ask you right this question right now. Don't answer me, please. But what are you thinking about right this second? How long is Danny going to be today? What's for lunch? What What did the Reeves bring for lunch? The thoughts that go through our minds as we're sitting there in the pew, while the word is being preached. And this is not about listening to me, guys. This is about listening to God's word. Satan is doing everything he can to steal away God's word. What are you thinking about? What do I have to do this afternoon? What about that game that I want to see? On and on and on. Not necessarily bad things, but anything to steal away our minds from hearing God's word. It is incredibly important for you and for me to focus on hearing what is being said. And that's hard to do. Some of you are tired. Some of you are yawning. Some of you want to take a nap. But think about what is at stake. Jesus is telling us what is at stake. Eternity is at stake because Satan is actively, not passively, actively working to steal away God's word. The second thing he says These are the ones that are sown on the rocky grounds, the one when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. We might call this temporary faith. This is a phenomenon where somebody hears the word of God and and just embraces it and then seems to fall away. And you say, well, they lost their salvation. No, they never had it. Listen to what he says. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then listen, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. What offends them? What happens? Tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word and they fall away. In other words, they're given an option. You believe this or don't you? Because if you believe this and you're going to hold to this, it's going to come with consequences. It's going to come with cost. You will pay and you may pay dearly uh, I, I, i'm not that i'm not that serious about this then verse 18 and others are sown among thorns they are those who hear the word listen to this they are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful then verse 20, but those who are sown on the good soil, these are the true regenerate, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and a hundredfold. The first three examples that Jesus uses in this parable all have an encounter with the gospel. They hear it, and every one of them is lost eternally. That's what Jesus is saying. And look at the circumstances surrounding their their being eternally lost. Satan steals away the word. Secondly, pressure is applied, forcing a choice between the word and the world. Thirdly, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches enables the hearer to chase perpetual shadows. The interesting word about this in verse 19, it's the word divide. The cares of this world, the word cares there is to divide. You think, well, what what is this talking about? James says it. A man that is divided in his mind is what? Unstable. Well, what is he talking about? I'm going in multiple directions at the same time. In verse 19, when he talks about the cares of this world, he's talking about having a divided mind. This is tough for us. The the enemy's purpose for the cares of this world is to divide our minds and divide our focus, to pay attention on the here and now and forget the eternal. That is to live for the moment. John Gill says this. Quote, in the cares of this world, the perplexing and distressing cares of it, to get as much of it as they can for themselves and families. Listen, fills their minds and possess their souls, even when and while they're hearing the word and the deceitfulness of riches or riches, which are deceitful, especially when trusted in and being obtained. They do not give the satisfaction they promise. And the lusts of other things entering in, carnal desires after other objects, which are pleasing to the sensual mind, entering into their hearts and gaining the ascendant there. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. These being more attended to than the word is, that is quite lost and becomes useless and unprofitable. What is he saying? The mind that is focused on the cares of this world will push aside the word of God when he hears it. And this is, I think, especially challenging for us men, because there's two ditches with this, isn't there? There's always two ditches. But I think men are especially susceptible to this, because I think about 1 Timothy 5, 8, that says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is what? Worse, as the King James says, than an infidel or an unbeliever. Say, I have to take care of my family. We do. We have a responsibility, a God-ordained responsibility to take care of our families. But what's the opposite side of that? When I am so consumed with pursuing my career, and guys, I run into this all the time. I work in the quote-unquote professional world. A lot of you do as well, and you see it. There is the never-ending pursuit to attain, to climb to the top of the mountain, to be at the very pinnacle. And then what? Well, at least I've said I've done it. I've mm-hmm. climbed the mountain. And there is something especially susceptible for us as men that appeals to the pride of our hearts and our flesh that says, I want to conquer that mountain. I want to attain the very peak of all success. And success can become addicting, can it? We can become addicts to our work in the pursuit of success. And what comes with that, which is profitability. Listen, there's nothing wrong with money, but there is something wrong with loving it, isn't there? The And, and people misquote this all the time. Money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. The love of money is the root of evil, of all evil question is do we have room for the gospel in the pursuits of our lives? Is there any thought of eternal things? Are these secondary to our pursuit in this life? It's interesting Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6: 31, therefore do not be anxious. <laughs> we use the term worry in our vernacular saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? We have to to wear clothes. Every one of you have clothes on this morning. It's a requirement. Don't come to church without them. Need them. Like them. Especially when it gets cold. But when it is the pursuit of our life, when it is the most important thing, Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after these things. What is he saying? The unbelievers focus his mind is chasing meeting of my needs. And if I can, not just meet my needs, but exceed my needs, meet my wants. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow would be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I would ask you this morning, is there anything you're worrying about right now? Is there anything that is capturing and dividing your mind? This starts to hit home, doesn't it? Say, I don't think like the world does. That's those people. Eh. What, is, what is capturing our minds? What is worrying us? This was especially evident during COVID, wasn't it? I read this uh, this article by U.S. News and World Report from August 2023, and, and it highlights the problem of anxiety and worry in our culture. And it said this, a mental health crisis hitting Americans shows no sign of abating With provisional numbers for 22 showing suicides rose by another 2.6 last year. That follows on an overall 5% increase in suicides in 2021. Noted officials at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which on Thursday released the early data for 2022. Overall, listen to this, 49,449 Americans lost their lives to suicide last year. It says lost, but it should say took up from 48,183 in 2021, the agency reported. You saw a ton of anxiety and worry and fear over the last two or three years, haven't we? But so much so that there, there was a point of hopelessness. I was thinking about this, and I, I would just urge you, we as Christians need to evaluate what social media is doing to us. There is a constant competition to present perfection and achievement to the rest of the world. That's the perfect family. How do I know that? Look at their pictures. They're always smiling. By the way, the Layou family pictures always always have. One, at least, not smiling. And the things that I have to do behind Nicole as she's taking a picture to get everybody to smile, I, I I won't do in front of you. But but there is this pressure, isn't there? It's a the drift of the current to present perfection. We're perfectly happy. Look at our nice things. We called, it, we called it in American culture, keeping up with the Joneses. Well, nobody knows that the Joneses were actually bankrupt and, and had to cash out their 401k because they were presenting this image of, of financial success to the rest of the world, the latest new car, the latest stuff, the latest fun vacations. How do you keep up with that? Did you know that Google now has a new phone that will take your picture and perfect it for you. Have you seen that commercial? You can take a picture of three or four people and it's, it's AI assisted, take a picture of three or four people. They're all, they're all miserable and you can (laughs) adjust the picture with AI to make them all smile. Couldn't get kid number 10 to look at the camera. No problem. This pic, this cat, it sounds insane doesn't it why does it do that why shouldn't pictures show imperfections what is wrong with showing imperfections in your family photos have you ever felt that pressure can't get all the kids to smile what's wrong with us well now you know you're all going to run out for that google camera now So, by the way, I don't have it with me and I apologize. I forget it, forgot it because of all the other cares of the world infringing on us this morning. But November's Table Talk is all about digital technology challenges to the church. And the question is, how do we as a church view technology? There are some that say, throw everything in the trash. We don't want any parts of it. But the reality of it is, Technology is a tool, and tools can be used for good or evil, can't they? The question is, how do we use it? Are we slaves to the tool? And for many of us, we understand what slavery to the tool is. Can you walk out of the house and leave your phone and not feel like you left a physical limb at home? Some people can, some people can't. I would say most of us feel like if I left my phone at home, it's like leaving your wallet. Maybe it is your wallet. <clears throat> Some people have their wallet connected to their phone. So, they'll, the, so they won't forget it. My point is, is we need to take very seriously how social media and technology affects the way we think. Does it reduce or enhance our anxiety? What are you worried about today? Wasn't this one of Satan's great temptations to Jesus? Really, the lie of the wicked one is, Father doesn't love you. Therefore, you need to take care of yourself. And if you're going to take care of yourself, you need to put all your energy into it, all of your focus into it, or you're not going to have a retirement. Well, what if you don't? What if you don't have a retirement? Then what? you think God's going to leave you and desert you? No. The beast of this world has its own cares. It also has its own loves. John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works or their deeds were evil. <laughs> what does this world love? And the question that we need to ask ourselves as we think about it, and I... I asked this question a couple weeks ago, really, as as we wrestle with understanding the impact of living in the presence of these two beasts, because that is now, by the way, it's not future. If we believe that, that this period of time that scripture is talking about is between the, the second coming and the ascension of Christ, these are the last days, these beasts are concurrent with our time frame now. How do we live with integrity? Because there is much pressure upon us to to compromise. There is a pressure upon us to shift our affection and our love. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you there is something about us that wants to be accepted that wants to be valued that wants to be appreciated that wants to be respected that wants to be loved and that can that can demonstrate itself in our lives by the effort uh, uh, on our part to make ourselves appealing this is one of the great challenges for, for the Christian, isn't it? I want to make the gospel appealing because I want people to believe it. And I want people to be converted and saved. The problem is, is my making the gospel appealing does what to the gospel? It dilutes it. Jesus, The scripture says that the, the gospel for those that perish is what? It's foolishness. It's insanity, but but there is a great pressure upon the church to compromise the message of the gospel to make it appealing. We want to be able to tell people that we need just a little bit of your useless flesh to contribute to the gospel so you feel good about yourself. You're not that bad a sinner. You're just a little sinner. You need self-help. But Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. We're not of the world. What is the warning of scripture? 1 John 2 15, do not love the world. Who is John talking to? He's talking to us. Do not love the world. Don't long for it. Don't dote after it. Don't follow the world around like a little puppy dog. The world meaning this ordered system, the cosmos. John says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, what comprises the world? Richard, you you mentioned it this morning. For all that is in the world, what's in the world? The desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes. The pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Matthew Henry says this, the things of the world may be desired. Listen to this. This is important. The things of the world may be desired and possessed for the uses and purposes which God intended. And they are to be used by his grace and to his glory. That is the proper use. But, Believers must not seek or value them for those purposes to which sin abuses them. And here's the danger. Matthew Henry continues, The world draws the heart from God, and the more the love of the world prevails, the more the love of God decays. The things of the world are classed according to the three ruling inclinations of depraved nature. The lust of the flesh, of the body. Wrong desires of the heart. The appetite of indulging all things that excite and inflame sensual pleasure. Secondly, the lust of the eyes. The eyes are are delighted with riches and rich possessions. This is the lust of covetousness. The pride of life. A vain man craves the grandeur and pomp of a vain glorious life. This includes thirst after honor and applause. Boy, if that doesn't describe, so what would Matthew Henry have said about Facebook? This includes thirst after honor and applause. The things of the world quickly fade and die away. Desire itself will ere long fail and cease, but holy affections or affection is not like the lust that passes away. The love of God shall never fail. Many vain efforts have been made to evade the force of this passage by limitations, distinctions, or exceptions. Many have tried to show how far we can be carnally minded and love the world. Think about that. We want to know how far we can go where we're not crossing that line with our love for this world. But Henry says the main the plain meaning of these verses cannot easily be mistaken. Unless this victory over the world has begun in the heart, a man has no root in himself, but will fall away or at most remain an unfruitful professor. Yet these vanities are so alluring to the corruption in our hearts that without constant watching and prayer, we cannot escape the world or obtain victory over the good or the God and prince of it. What do we love? We see this phenomenon in our culture where our kids grow up and they go to college. And then what happens? so commonplace for Christian children to go to college and then they they lose their minds. We think what happened? There is an incredible draw that's put upon young people pressures to conform to this world and not just to conform to it but to love it. It's real. You say, well, that's for young kids. We grown ups don't have to worry about that. Yeah, we do. What do we love? The beast of this world also has its own friends. Here's another one James 4 4. You adulterous people, do, do you not know that friendship, that is affection or fondness with the world, all that is in it is enmity or hostile with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is a very interesting litmus test. Who is your dearest friend in this world? Saint. Christian. Who is your dearest friend in this world? If if you answer that question with an unbeliever, something's wrong. If your affection and fondness looks like friendship with people that despise The very God you worship, something's wrong. If the people that you hang out with and you naturally gravitate to, think about that. Who are you yourself with? I know we have people that we work with, people that we're around. We have have people that we're associated with, that we're friendly with. But my question is, who do we gravitate to? Who can I be myself with? What is that friend or that group of friends where I can let my hair down, as the saying goes, and be myself with? Those are our real friends. And James says, you adulterous people. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that friendship with this world is adultery, spiritual adultery against the God we claim to worship. We're cheating on him is what he's saying. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because, But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The mark of a friend of the world, a follower of the beast, is one who loves and pursues the things of this world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is antinomalism, it's anti-law. The mark of the friend of Jesus is what? Obedience. Here's the question I would have. Do my friends encourage me to obey Christ? Those are the kind of people that I need to surround myself with. Amen. The scripture says iron sharpens iron. We, as, as saints, as children of God, need to surround ourselves with other children of God who are serious about obedience to God. Because what does it do for me? It encourages me to be faithful, to be obedient. That's the encouragement I need. I don't need to surround myself with antinomians. In other words, people that do it their own way. As Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. That's the philosophy of the world, isn't it? I did it my way. Oh, good for you. But that appeals to our flesh. Rebels at heart. I don't need to be surrounded by rebels because surrounding myself with rebels is going to do what? It's going to encourage me to rebel. Especially to our young people. Take note of this. Who are your friends? Who do you surround yourself with? Do they encourage you spiritually? And I would ask, what kind of friend are you to your friends? Are you encouraging them spiritually? Are you encouraging them to be rebellious, to do it their way? One of the great ways of of testing this is how do you talk about your parents? When your parents aren't around. Mm-hmm. Let me just say, mom and dad are not perfect. But the young person that is constantly ridiculing his parents is not really ridiculing mom and dad. They're ridiculing that authority. Mm-hmm. That's the picture of the follower of the beast. He has problem. He or she has a problem with God's ordained authority. Remember, Satan takes everything that God ordains in, in his authority structure, and they warp and they twist it. Think about the government that we talked about with the first beast. Think about the church and warping the authority of the church. Is there any, any contest within the church now in, in regard to church leadership and how church should be led? What does the elder look like? What does the deacon look like? Is it a he or is it a she? How about the marriage? Do we see our culture warping and twisting? God's ordained design for the marriage. My point is is every ordained level of authority that God has given to us for our good and his glory the rebel wants to twist, redefine and reshape to make it in their image. That's the thinking of the beast. The beast, this world has its own spirit. So the scripture says the holy spirit guides us into all truth. This spirit does not Look at 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. What does he mean by that? Do we walk around talking to spirits? I hope not. If you do, there's a problem. But but listen to what he's talking about here. Spirits are talking to us. And how do they do that? How do they do that? How do spirits talk to us? What John is saying here is that teaching, preaching, philosophy, anything that we are hearing is motivated by one or two spirits. Either it's of God or it's not. And if it's not of God, how do we test it? He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For, listen, many false prophets... Have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Is from God. What is he saying here? How do you test the spirits? How do you test what you are hearing? The litmus test that John gives is a pure unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anything does not conform with the pure unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, where is it from? Where is it from? Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit, listen, this is the spirit of Antichrist, <clears throat> which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. The question that we should ask ourselves is where do these false prophets live? Where do these false prophets live? Give their voice. Where do people hear them? I would argue in our churches. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. What did Jesus say? My sheep, what? Hear my voice and they follow me. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. In other words, if they reject the gospel, they're not from God. If they teach another gospel, Paul says, let them be accursed. Whoever is not from God and does, or, and does not listen to us, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What is he saying? If what you are hearing does not conform with God's word, it is coming from another spirit. What is that spirit? It's the spirit of this world, the spirit of Antichrist. John doesn't mince words. 2 John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. But do you see why they're deceiving? Why are false prophets deceiving? Because their message sounds so like the truth, so similar to the truth. Why do people follow false prophets? Because the message sounds good. It sounds right. I want you to notice that that the false prophet impersonates the lamb, and I am almost done, I promise. I mean it this week, second Thessalonians chapter two, I'm not going to do a deep dive on this passage, but I want you to understand second Thessalonians two. We commonly read this regarding the lawless one or the antichrist. And we'll talk more about this as we get further in our study in this chapter. But I want you to notice what he says. This is, this is how he impersonates the lamb and concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, what is the error that Paul is addressing here? There are some that are saying that the day of the Lord has already passed. It'd be like somebody saying to you right now, the rapture's already happened, the Lord's already come back. If, if you came to the conclusion that the Lord has already returned and you're still here, what would you feel like? How would you think? If the Lord came back to get his people and you're still here, would that shake you up? Paul says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Let no one deceive you in any way. Four. Four. That day will not come, that is, the return of the Lord, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition or destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that listen to this. He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there are many people that automatically assume that that is the physical temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, when that gets reconstructed and they're not fighting over it, he'll sit in that temple. What did we learn about the temple in Revelation chapter 11? What is the temple? The temple is the dwelling place of God, is it not? Where is this lawless one looking to set up worship and the focal point of worship? We're we're missing the point by thinking he's sitting on a stone. Throne in the Middle East somewhere. That's not what, the, what Paul is warning here. Paul is talking about the very real danger of deception as one who puts himself in the place of Christ, where we recognize him in the temple of God. He is going to look like us. And verse 9 says, the coming of a lawless one is by the activity of activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. very similar to the concept of Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh and they God told Aaron when Aaron said and Moses said, "How do I prove to Pharaoh that we are your servants and that we came from you? Throw your rod down and it'll turn into a snake. Well what happened when they did that and they're standing in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants, impersonated it, counterfeited it. What makes us so deceiving is that it looks like something that we could agree with, something that we could. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that that deception will be so great that if it were possible, what? Very elect would be deceived. You think I'd see it coming a mile away. There's one thing that guarantees that we will not be deceived. Look at verse 13. Or look at verse 11. And and here's here's something that's important. It it asks the question, why why the two beasts? Why the two beasts? I want you to see something. Paul says very distinctly here, the two beasts that we see in Revelation 13 are God's judgment on this unbelieving world. Because look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Therefore, and he's talking about the false prophet, the lawless one, the Antichrist. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Did you hear that? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Listen, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What is Paul saying? The the beast that we're talking about, the false prophet, is a pronouncement of judgment on this unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. Verse 13 is, is huge. But we... Ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. If you are not carried away by deception, it is not because you are so smart and you have studied so much and achieved such a level of spirituality that you are beyond deception. What does he say? You have been chosen through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. In other words, God has kept us as his people from following and believing the lie. And then lastly, it says this beast speaks like a dragon. What does that mean? Well, who is the dragon? Dragon is Satan. It's the devil. Revelation 16, 12, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, these are symbols again, but John interprets it. He says, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, the first beast, corrupt government, the second beast, the false prophet, every one of them have the same message. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. They all look the same. Their message is the same. And what is their message? Verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. What is he saying here? The message of the dragon, the the first beast, and the false prophet are all the same, and they are rallying the enemies of God together. It is the assembling of the enemy together in opposition to God. And what motivates that message? The spirit of this world—it's the message of demons. I want to encourage you with this as we close this morning. What keeps us from being deceived? It's—it's it's simply this. And if you're resting in anything else, we're—we're we're off target. We're kept by Jesus while we're in this world. John sixteen thirty-three. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How do we know that Jesus means what he says? Well, we are given insight into John 17, the prayer between Jesus and the Father, where Jesus cries out to the Father. And what is Jesus praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Think about this for a second. Jesus is about to go where? To the cross. Does he know where he's going? Does he know at that point where he's headed? Of course he does. As he had the last supper with his disciples, he he shows them, this is my body, which is about to be broken for you and my blood, which will be poured out for the sins of many. Jesus knew exactly where he was going. What do you think you would be praying about if you knew you were going to be nailed to and hung to a cross until you died. What would you be thinking about? And we find something amazing. Jesus is praying for us. And he says in, in John seventeen six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Listen, out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you get, you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Jesus is saying my mission is nearing completion. I have given the people that you gave me your truth. I've delivered that to them, and they have believed it. And they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Listen to this verse 9, John 17. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Notice the contrast between those and them and the world. Jesus is not confused. Jesus knew exactly who he was praying for and exactly who he was dying for. If you ask the average churchgoer, who did Jesus die for? What would they say? The whole world. What is Jesus saying here? I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for those you have given me. Jesus was very clear on his mission. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have, listened, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. Here is the essence of our defense. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. You see the distinction that Jesus is making here? It's not even in doubt. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That's Jesus's prayer for us. What is he praying? Matthew Henry again says, Christ does not pray that they might be rich and great in the world, but that they might be kept from sin, strengthened for their duty, and brought safe to heaven. The prosperity of the soul is the best prosperity. Jesus pleaded with his Holy Father that he would keep them by his power and for his glory, that they might be united in affection and labors, even according to the union of the Father and the Son. Listen to this. He did not pray that his disciples should be removed out of the world. That they might escape the rage of men, for they had a great work to do for the the glory of God and the benefit of mankind. But he prayed that the father would keep them from evil, from being corrupted by the world, the remains of sin in their hearts and from the power and craft of Satan so that they might pass through the world as through an enemy's country as he had done. They are not left there to pursue the same objects as the men around them, but to glorify God and to serve their generation. I was reminded this morning, as I was thinking about this, the, the picture of Pilgrim's Progress and Christian and faithful on their way to the celestial city, and they had to go through Vanity Fair. You guys remember that? If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you ought to. And they have a conversation with evangelists. And they ask evangelists, what should we expect as we progress through this life? And I have to go through, what is the picture of Vanity Fair? This world. I have to get through this world to get to the celestial city. What should I expect? And evangelist tells them, you're going to be persecuted. One of you is going to die. And in the story we read, faithful is martyred, does not make it through the city as it were. But then he's caught up on a chariot of fire. And as they're sitting in prison and being mocked and ridiculed by the inhabitants of the Vanity Fair, they talk about the fact that the one, whichever the one of the two of them is martyred, is going to be the one who is in the presence of the Lord and is better off. When we get to that point in our lives where we realize that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord and I will be better off, our love for this world is dimming. When we get to that place in our lives where we're ready to leave this world behind, that our our ties, our anchors, if you will, have been severed. And listen, I get it. We want the best for our families. We want to take care of them. But the reality of of this Christian life, if you're a child of God, it is far better for us to be in his presence than to be here. But in the meantime, we have to go through this world to get there. Jesus did not pray that the Father would take us out, did he? Again, a reminder that the rapture is just not in here. I was thinking about Isaac Watts, him, Am I a Soldier of the Cross?, He says, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies? Listen to this. This was written in the 1700s, but so applicable. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? And here's the the million-dollar question. Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer, though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith's discerning eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thy armies shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. How do we overcome this world and the beast of this world? First John five four, and we'll close for everyone. Listen, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What was Jesse talking about this morning? You must be born again. Everyone who has been born of God, the idea there is regenerated, quickened, made alive. It is the ones who have been sealed by the spirit of God, genuine children of God who are regenerate, that are protected and have overcome the deception of this world. And this is a victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? The question this morning, and all fear of deception can go away. Are you resting in the true, finished work, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? If you have, you need not fear being deceived. You need not fear being led astray, because we're kept. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is what? Greater. Then he who is in the world, if if the Holy Spirit indwells you and you are his child, you need not worry. He has sealed you. He has marked you out for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we have that we are kept. Lord, it's not our mastery of scripture, though we must study Though we must learn, it is not some level of achievement that we reach that guarantees that we can't be deceived or pulled away. But we know that we are kept by the power of God and the spirit of God. For those of us that belong to you, the spirit of God indwells us. And he has sealed us. He has stamped us. He has given his mark of ownership and preserved us until the very end so that we can walk through this world in peace, knowing that we are kept. Even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of being hated and despised by the people around us that we want to admire us. Lord, I pray that you would break our ties from this world that you would relieve us of our love for this place that will soon pass away help us to see lord what is waiting for us help us to 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 see with singleness of mind and not be divided in our minds because of the cares of this world that so easily overwhelm us we pray that your word would be heard this morning that it would find good ground father that your people would believe the gospel. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.